Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship, and I'm grateful for the service of many of these people here, but particularly of Brother Ed. Uh, as you are perhaps well aware, uh, Ed helps us with our spaghetti dinner every month, and there are many things that Pastor Brian and I make sure that we're involved in to help shepherd the people who are there. Uh, we are not really involved in organizing the spaghetti dinners. Um, one, because Ed won't let us. But two, because he does such a great job. I want to give a particular shout out to him and to the team who served with that. Yes, right? This past Friday, uh, they were able to give out 150 meals uh, at the spaghetti dinner. And it was an incredible moment of love and service, and so thank you to those that serve. Thank you to Ed for all that he does for us. I also want to make note that uh, we are able to do this because of your generosity in giving, that we're able to afford to do these things and other ministry efforts because you give. And I want to make note that uh, if you're giving online, you can give at homesavenue.com forward slash give. If you're giving here in person, you're able to give as you exit with our ushers. Now, as we are beginning our time of studying the Scriptures today, we're going to be in uh, Acts uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 31, and we're going to go into chapter 5, wrap up around verse 11. And today, we're going to be looking at this idea of unity of the Spirit. You see, as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we've seen some incredible things occur. And as we get to this point, what we see is Luke taking a special moment to really focus in on the unity of the local church, the unity of the group that God has called together to do ministry within the city of Jerusalem. And in particular here, we find that this unity comes after they begin to experience persecution, after they pray for boldness, after they beg God to bring His Spirit down upon them and move in such a way that He would receive all glory and honor. Now, I think it's special that we see unity occur right after this time of persecution and difficulty. And in particular, I think it's important because unity is such a difficult word for our world today, right? That if we look across just where we live, work, and play, that we live in a world that doesn't have unity. That we live in a world that is disruptive, that is divided, that is split and fractured in every which way you can find. Yet, we see this example in Scripture that the church, this called out people of God set apart from the world, is to be unified. It would paint the picture for us that we as the church... In the modern world, this called out people of God should be unified. And I know you may look around the room and say, this is a diverse group of people, right? Different backgrounds, different experiences, different things that you bring to the table in terms of skills, giftings, and if we're honest with one another, different bits of baggage that we're bringing to this relationship. Yet, as we study this passage, as we look through the width and breadth of Scripture, one of the things we recognize is the thing that unites us, that brings true unity, is the one that we worship, and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one that unites us, that brings us together, that brings unity to the local body. I believe we see that on display in these verses, and so if you would, if you would stand as we read through these verses together, I believe that these will display something for unity for us to see. So beginning with verse 32, 
Now the full number of those who believed and were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we pray today as we study these verses that you would make your meaning clear to us. That you would show us what it is you have for us to learn here. That we would clearly listen to the words of Scripture. Father, that you would speak through me in such a way that people would see, hear, and respond to the glory of your name. That the things that are said would encourage and edify them and would draw them closer to you. Father, it is my prayer, it is our hope that you would move in such a way to show us the truth of these verses. Lead us to unity with one another and with you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin here, on the surface as we look at this, you may question if this passage is about unity. That as we read through it, you've probably focused in on the last portion that we read, chapter 5, and you're thinking, this isn't about unity. Walter's actually about to have a conversation with me about my giving. Well, no, we're not going to have that conversation. Uh, Rather, we're going to look at the true meaning of the passage in context. We can't look at the first part of chapter 5 without the last part of chapter 4. It doesn't make sense to us unless we look at it together. And so here, as we look into this section of Scripture, we're going to see that beginning in verse 32, we see unity being put on display. 
we see unity being put on display before the people of God. Read again with me these verses. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, here, what I believe we see is that the early church is continuing to respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit. You see, we look at the preceding verses, specifically verse 31, and we recognize that in this they pray, and the last part of that's important, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Immediately after this filling, we have Luke, who's explaining what the early church is doing, and he begins to tell us there's a movement here. You see, he uses the phrase, now the full number of those who believed. And this idea of full number, this would suggest to us that many, if perhaps not most of the church, were moved to act in these very specific ways. You see, they felt compelled to respond to neediness and brokenness in their midst with generosity and kindness. Now, we recognize that as we look at chapter 5, that not everyone felt this way, of course, But we can say with confidence that there are a great many people who were genuinely moved by the Holy Spirit. And they desire to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus to those that are around them. So what's actually happening here, right? We have this fun phrase, you know, that that they were of one heart and soul and that they didn't they had everything in common. What's going on here? I think we got to look at those in some separate areas and really begin to think about what's happening here. First and foremost, this phrase, one heart and soul. I know it sounds like it's coming from a bad romance novel or something, but it's not. It's actually a Greek phrase that was used within culture. And this is really a phrase that denotes friendship between equals, typically of those that are the same social status, right? That this is a a Greek phrase that is used, and this is denoting that we look upon one another with love, kindness, and affection. This is a phrase that he used to display friendship. Now, there are really a ton of implications from this as we look at this statement. But what I believe Luke is trying to draw out before us is he's trying to put the unity of the church on display. You see, we see that there is a unity of purpose and friendship in the church using this phrase. He's not using this by accident. Luke is a very specific, particular man that we know through archaeological evidence and things like this where he tells us he finds things and sees things. That's where it happened, and we have proof that it happened there. He's a very particular man, and so he doesn't come to this phrase by accident. You see, he's trying to make clear to you and I, to the people who would read this in his day, he's trying to explain the reality that the gospel unites us together as new creations. 
The gospel unites us together as new creations. It's echoing the language of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, writing Ephesians, he uses this language of one body, one spirit, one Lord, etc. He's trying to put on display that there is unity. Now, we have to recognize that as we look at the book of Acts, that the early church isn't perfect. Uh, To be fair, we have a group of imperfect people who are trying to serve a perfect Lord. We're going to make mistakes, right? You're going to have problems. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have disappointment. And we recognize as we look through the, the book of Acts, the church struggles with unity sometimes. You know, they have problems where they don't agree on certain things throughout the book. And we understand that. Luke's not ignoring those things as he's writing this. We recognize those are to come. But he's pointing to the way that those are going to be resolved. The resolution that we're going to find is by being submissive to God's creative plan and finding unity through the Spirit, not through earthly, worldly things. You see, when conflict comes up in the midst of the early church, they bring conflict up in the midst of earthly things, things of race, of religious customs, of ethnic backgrounds. And the writers of the New Testament would say, those things are intended to divide you. What should unite you is the one that you worship. You might recognize that some of that resonates even today within just our culture, right? So much divides us, whether it's things of race, social experience, ethnic backgrounds. Yet the thing that should unite us, particularly within the local church, is that we serve a perfect, holy Savior. That in the midst of the church, when we have conflict, what so often happens is that we are having conflict because we're focused on earthly things, not heavenly things. And the truth is, is that we are to recognize and submit to God's creative plan that we find unity, true unity, only when we have found the resurrected Savior. Now, as we look at this, Luke's displaying that, but he's also wanting to get something else across. He's making something very clear within a very class-conscious culture. You see, by using this phrase to refer to the entire church, what he is displaying is that everyone within the church should view themselves as co-equals. You see, you have to remember this phrase that he's using, it's only used to refer to those who are in the same social status, right? That you would only use that language to someone who is worthy to be your friend, not someone who's below your status. Luke's driving the point home that the cross is the great leveler in human history. The cross is the great leveler within human history. While we recognize the reality that we come from different backgrounds, we have different experiences, different things that we bring to the table, we don't believe that those experiences, those backgrounds, make you any better or any worse than anyone else in the midst of this world. We have to remember the reality, if it were not but for the grace of God, we would be in the same situation. And Luke is making clear to the people who are reading this that unity, true unity, is only found through the resurrected Savior. Now, as we look at this section, there's a portion of it that's a little bit controversial. 
as we look at it. And it's the last half of 32. It's the section where they said that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. On the surface, we read that, and if you're a student of history and culture, on the surface, that immediately sounds like something like socialism or communism or just things that, depending upon your political leaning, you might be excited or stressed about, right? We need some context to understand what's actually happening here. First and foremost, no, the writers of the New Testament are not subscribing to communism or socialism. In fact, they would deny those things as being helpful or fruitful. We see in the next few verses that we still have members of the church who have individual ownership of land and houses. That that doesn't belong to the church, that doesn't belong to the apostles, that it's theirs until they choose to do something with it. We also see that when they sell those items, perhaps for the church, perhaps for their own purposes, if they want to do that, it's a voluntary thing. The reason this is important is that what we're seeing here is not a forced giving up of resources, but rather it's a voluntary giving up of resources to those that have less. Perhaps you remember Jesus talking about the least of these. That is the church recognizing that in their financial position, they have more than others. And they recognize that in their financial position, they can afford to give to others. The reality is that we look at this and it just looks odd. It looks unusual to us within our culture today. Frankly, because generosity and giving is not a part of our culture today. In fact, when we think about things in the Western culture, if you were to look around our country and to ask, hey, who is it that you as an individual have responsibility over? The most common answer you're going to get is no one. And then when pressed, what they're going to say is, well, maybe my family, like my wife and my kids, I'm responsible for them. Frankly, you know, this is a bit of a stretch because many wouldn't bat an eyelash at that statement to say, I'm responsible for nobody. That even in the culture today, that for me to say that I'm responsible for my family and perhaps my immediate family, like my father and my brother and his wife, to have some measure of responsibility you would say that's weird. That's what our culture would say. Now, frankly, in the ancient culture of Israel, they would also say that that is weird, too, that they find that unusual, that beyond just providing care for your immediate family, they said, what what does it mean that you would care for someone else? That's their problem, right? They made their choices. They are the ones who ended up here. You don't have responsibility for them. Yet, What we see here in this passage, we see that ultimately people who have no real responsibility for others, according to the culture, they're voluntarily giving of their resources to provide for others. You see, we have this selfless generosity that is being displayed among those who believe. Rest assured, they're really not getting anything out of this beyond the fact that they are meeting the needs of someone else within their faith family. Really, this leads me to a question that I think we need to ask with some regularity in our lives. And this question is, is when is the last time that someone else's problem became my problem? When is the last time that someone else's problem became 
my problem. And I don't mean this in the legal sense, like I was a co-signer on a house or a car or something. But I mean that I voluntarily picked up the troubles from someone else and said, I am going to bear the weight of this. I am going to take this from you so that you may benefit and be blessed. When is the last time that I chose to allow someone else's problems to become my problem? I think if we're honest with one another, we would say not very frequently, right? If we're honest with one another, we would say that I have enough problems. I have enough things that I'm dealing with and you want me to pick up more? Yet, we see the early church responding with selfless generosity to those that are in need. That we don't see questions of, is this right? Is this something I should do? Rather, they respond and meet needs. Now, what's the response of that? What is the result of that action, right? Because you might look at that and you think, well, that's a little crazy, right? It had to leave to anarchy and just ridiculous stuff being brought to the church for people to give to Well, in verse 33, it leads to great power. You see, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. You see, the result of being filled by the Spirit and by giving selflessly, generously, The apostles and the church have ample opportunities to proclaim of the resurrection of Christ. You see, the power of what the apostles were saying was backed up and enhanced by this practical sharing of the community. You see, they were proclaiming the power of the resurrection while the church was demonstrating the reality of the resurrection. Not only were they saying that Jesus has come to forgive all sins because He cares for you and loves you as one of His own, they then demonstrated that by saying, if Jesus loves you as one of His own, I will bear the weight of your troubles for Jesus' name and glory. The truth is is that both are crucial to the ministry of the church, right? That the truth is, as we look through Scripture, we as Baptists lean heavily into proclamation and proclaiming the gospel. And that is good. We should proclaim the gospel because you can do all the good things in the world. And if you don't proclaim the good news of Jesus, you're no different than any other nonprofit. Right? But there are times where we not only must proclaim the gospel, but we must serve And do good deeds. You see, God uses both, as we see in these verses, to open the hearts and minds of people to the power of the gospel. They hear these words proclaiming that Christ is king, he died for you. And they see the church serving in such a way that they can see that Christ truly does care for them. Now, Luke isn't content with just giving us this little bit. He zooms in just a little bit to really let us see in depth what's happening here in verses 32 and 33. You see in verse 34, there's this really ridiculous statement 
that there was not a needy person among them. Can we just talk about how crazy of a statement that is, right? That there was not a single person within the congregation in Jerusalem that had needs because they were being met. I look around this room and I think if we were to be honest with one another, many of us would say that we have needs that aren't being met, right? We're just honest and we want to be open about our things like finances, about our personal health, about our mental health, whatever it might be, right? You would say that there are things that you need help with. If we're honest, right? Yet, not a person in the church of Jerusalem would say that in this day because their needs have been met. You see, the church was experiencing God's blessing and they were pursuing this ideal that everyone would experience the blessing of God, both spiritual and physical. Now, it's also necessary to note as we look at this verse, right, that we recognize that yet again that this is a practice of selling land, of giving. This is all a voluntary action, right? That I would not dare stand up here and contradict the Scriptures and say that you must give generously to serve those who are in need. But I would with confidence say that if you love the Lord Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you should feel compelled to give generously to those who are in need. The truth is, is that no one, you or I or any of the people of the early church, are under any obligation to perform this action. Yet the fact that people would give generously makes it all the more remarkable and praiseworthy because no one is making them do this. Now, what's the outcome of all this? Well, they, in verse 35, lay these offerings at the feet of the apostles and it's distributed to each as any had need. Isn't that such a remarkable statement? That they would give generously, lavishly, some would say, above their means, perhaps, so that those who have nothing would have something. Is that not just a reflection of the gospel that they would provide so generously through the grace of God? Now we see that it's given to the apostles, it's laid at their feet to be used for the good of those who had needs. And this idea of laying it at their feet is to reflect submission of the people who are giving. They're submitting themselves to God in this. Not that the apostles are God, but they are here representing God. That when they submit, they're submitting to God, not to the apostles. You see, this further emphasizes this point in this selfless, generous giving. It's a reflection of the selfless generosity of Christ when they're giving. Now Luke has a particular person he wants to call out, give a shout out here. Just like I did with Brother Ed, he wants to put something in Scripture to bring praise and attention to someone. And that's a man named Barnabas. Now, as we look at verse 36 and 37, we're going to hear just a little bit about Barnabas, but he's going to make an appearance, several appearances, later on in the book of Acts. You see, Barnabas is a key player throughout the book of Acts, particularly with his involvement for the Apostle Paul. Barnabas is actually the man who shepherded and guided 
the Apostle Paul into ministry. You know, the, the man who wrote half the New Testament, Barnabas is the guy who got him up to the plate and told people, I know that he was once a persecutor of the faith, but Jesus himself has redeemed him. Barnabas is a pretty important guy, and maybe that's why Luke is giving him a shout out, but regardless of what's happening here, his actions are being praised not because of his future work, but because of the generosity he's showing here. You see, Barnabas is selling a plot of land and giving it to the church. That he wants to get in on this action. Not because he hopes to get something out of this, but because he says, this is what God has called me to do. To give generously where I have an abundance so that others may be blessed and receive the grace of God. Now this is painting what I hope is a beautiful picture of what God can do through generosity, can do through unity that is being put on display within the life of the church. But we recognize as we look at the next section of Scripture, we see disunity come into play. We see disunity begin to manifest itself. You see, in the next section, our second point is we see the defense of unity. We see the defense of unity. Now as we look at these verses, we have to understand that there's a great deal that's happening here. I want to read through portions of this again so that you can remember where we're at. But beginning in verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's just stop right there, right? We, we need to make sure you understand what's happening. We encounter this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They are here, and frankly, we see them for just a few verses, because by the end of this section, both of them are dead and buried. And what we see happening here is that they sell a piece of land. Nothing major, right? They sell a piece of land. And then we see that they run into some conflict here when they lay it at the apostles' feet. You see, look with me at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? For while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So we see this, and we have to ask the question, what on earth is happening, right? We see Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some land. And then he comes before Peter and lays this down, and Peter rebukes him. And by the end of the section, Ananias is dead. Well, we have to recognize what's going on. As we look back at verse 2, we see that they sell a piece of land. And in there, there is a specific word they use in kept back. This word within the Greek, this word is nosphazamai. This means to pilfer, to purloin, to embezzle. You see, John Polhill, a commentator who focuses on the book of Acts, 
he suggests that what is happening here is that Ananias and Sapphira has seen the blessing that has come to the community from people who are giving generously, and they want to get in on the action. They want to be praised for their kindness, just like Barnabas was. And so what they have done is they've sold their land, and they've kept a little money for themselves. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like a difficult thing. They've told everyone, we've sold the land for $75, when really they sold it for 100 and kept the rest for themselves. Now, Peter calls out Ananias here. And frankly, we're not really sure about how Peter knows this, right? We, we think by looking at this passage that perhaps the Spirit has told him that Ananias is here lying, that he's giving him a, a false pretense of how he's gotten these things together. And so he calls out Ananias and says, how, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has he filled your heart so that you would lie to me? And in that moment, Ananias is caught between two worlds, right? On one side, he's got this community that has been formed by the Holy Spirit, that is built on this trust of the Holy Spirit, that the people in this community find their identity and security in God. Yet on the other side, he has the world and Satan. This side said that security can only be built on earthly possessions, that your identity is defined by what you have, not what you give up. You see, Peter's words are very strong because he's speaking against the actions and lies of Ananias and Sapphira. Essentially, what Peter is telling Ananias right here is that the actions you're performing, they're making a mockery of all that God has done in the church to this point. And he's saying that this mockery, this lie, this deceit has come from Satan himself and is being poured out in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. And he makes this note, he's very clear here, that Ananias had no obligation to sell his land. In fact, he could have sold it and kept his money. Remember, giving to the community is voluntary. But what happened here, the root of the problem, is that Ananias decided he wanted to profit from this as well. And so he skimmed a little bit on the top. You see, what happens here is that Ananias chose to steal from God what was God's. It would be the same thing as if you dropped your cash into the offering plate and I pulled out a $20 bill because I get a little bit off the top too, right? That is exactly what Ananias did. That if I were to do that, every one of you would say, well, we should probably fire him, right? God said... I'll strike him dead for stealing from me. That I will end this immediately. The reality is that whatever happened, how Ananias died in verse 5, we don't know. Maybe he just experienced crushing shock and guilt. Maybe God struck him down right there. Ultimately, whatever happened there, Ananias and Sapphira were judged by God and found wanting in their lives. Now, Ananias is dead. He's in the grave. That he is gone to be with the Lord, perhaps. And Sapphira comes back into the story again. See, verse 7 reads, 
After an interval, interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Sapphira shows up about three hours later. And what we see here is Peter has just one question for her. One thing that he wants to ask. Is this the price that you sold the land for? We, we would make an assumption that he's quoting the false price that Ananias gave him earlier. And she affirms that yes, they did sell it for that price. And Peter's response to us brings the image of a parent to mind who knows that you're telling a lie. Has anyone ever been in that situation? Where you've looked your parent in the face and with confidence said, absolutely not. When they literally have you on video? No, I've never done that, no. But we see this standing before Peter and I want to clearly say that she is lying to him. But we also see the potential of repentance. That perhaps if she had said, yes, I'm lying, Peter, maybe her life could have been saved. Regardless of what happens, God himself passes judgment upon them, and she's dead. And in verse 11, we have this great fear that has come upon the whole church. It's the same great fear that comes out in verse 5 as well. And as you look at all this... You may be asking, as we've looked at this, as I've asked over the years in studying this, why was this sin so serious, right? Why was this such a serious sin that God would strike them dead? Why would they not just be excommunicated, right, and just separated from the church? Why would God strike them dead? Well, I think as we look at this, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind. The reality is that what we see here, this is hypocrisy at its worst and most damaging. You see, within the church, one of the things that we struggle with is this idea of hypocrisy, right? G.K. Chesterton is reputed to have said that the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. One of the realities that we recognize is that we speak to so many people in our day-to-day life who will assent to you that the reason I don't go to church is because Christians are terrible people. And we live in a culture that is getting more lost every year because that is one of the predominant lies that is said. Unfortunately, it's not a lie in many cases because, quite frankly, Christians sometimes are terrible people. Because we tolerate sins that we should condemn. Big things, adultery, murder, etc. You're gone. You're out in the church. Right? We won't keep you around. But sins like pride, arrogance, slander, 
That's okay. She's been here 20 years. They were born and raised here. They don't know any better. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were killed. They were judged by God because they were found guilty of what I believe is the most severe and dangerous sin in the midst of the church, and that is spiritual pride. This is more dangerous than anything else in the world because what that comes up as, what that is displayed as, is that you are trying to use Christianity to get a reputation within the world. That you're trying to use the church to get a reputation of being someone who is moral, who is upright, who is someone who is worthy of praise and honor. You see, people like that have missed the gospel's message of free grace to unworthy sinners. They try to present themselves as something that they're not. Ultimately, this is the root of hypocrisy. And this is why we live in a culture today where the church is powerless. Because far too long we have tolerated the sin of spiritual pride and hypocrisy. And we've been unwilling to call balls and strikes in an appropriate manner. As I said, the big sins, things like adultery, murder, etc., we are the first to cry out against those. We will make sure that those people will not have leadership positions. We will make sure that they know that they are probably not welcome here anymore. But if someone wants to gossip or lie, we're okay with those things. You see, the root of hypocrisy is saying that we're different and living in the same way as the rest of the world. You see, the reason that Ananias and Sapphira had to die was so that God could put fully on display how important unity and repentance are. This great fear that we see being addressed here is not just fear of God going, He's a holy God and He just did this. That yes, people are not recognizing that their toes are being stepped on there. But it's also an awe of recognizing all they did was cheat from God. And He jealously defended His position. If He would be so jealous to defend His position against those that would say they're His... What more will he do against those that are not his? You see, God is putting on clear display this truth. That if we are going to live our lives as being unwilling to honestly repent of our sin and shame, we are not worthy of the gospel of Jesus. You see, that is the very nature of what rejecting the gospel is. It is saying that the gospel message of free grace to unworthy people is not for me because I've got it together. The reality is is that not a one of us is perfect. Not a one of us has it all together. 
that frankly, I've said this before, but I don't think you believe me. The truth is, is if you truly knew who I was as a person, how selfish and callous I can be in my heart sometimes, you wouldn't want to be my friend. And if I could see truly who you are as a person, I probably wouldn't want to be your friend. Yet, we recognize that those things, our faults, our sins and shames, they are not the things that define us. The thing that defines us is Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection. And it defines us by, do we assent and believe that He has died and paid a debt for our sins? Or have we rejected this free gift of grace to unworthy people like you and I? You see, the thing that brings us together, the thing that provides unity, is the gospel of Jesus. The thing that unites us is Jesus. The thing that makes us worthy of love and affection and care is Jesus. And so today, we have an opportunity to be honest with ourselves and with others. We have an opportunity for us to be honest about who we are before the Lord. And that honesty can be displayed by clearly proclaiming the good news of the gospel to our hearts, minds, and souls. By trusting in Jesus, repenting of our sins, and saying that I am indeed a new creation because of what Christ has done in my life. Or we can rest in our sin and shame, reject the gospel message yet again, and choose sin and shame until the end. We have opportunity to put our pride aside, to put our egos and arrogance down, and to say that before the Lord, I am nothing without Him. In the next few moments, we'll have a time of prayer where it'll be silent for a few moments, where you, as an individual, can go before the Lord where you can confess your sin and shame, where you can find acceptance, peace, hope from Him. After a few moments, I'll pray for us, and we're going to go into a time of worship. And in this time of worship, this is an opportunity for us to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. That as we sing these, this last song, this is an opportunity for us to cry out by the greatness of God to proclaim of His goodness, to rest in the comfort of the cross. And so I would encourage you, if you're here, if you're wrestling with these things, if you have questions or concerns, first, in this time of prayer, go to the Lord. The Scriptures are clear that anytime someone comes to Him seeking repentance, seeking grace, the Lord will respond. After that, speak to me. I would love to hear what God is doing in your life to celebrate all that He is doing and shaping so that you might become the person that He's created you to be. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me?
Father, we come to you as people who have sinned, who've fallen short of your glory, who have been found wanting when measured up against your perfection and holiness. And as we wrestle with these things, we recognize that it is necessary for us to own the fact that we do not have it all together. That we are imperfect people who are living in an imperfect world while a perfect Savior works and ministers in this world and in our lives. And Father, it is that imperfection, it is that sin that has led us astray that brings us to come before you and repent. To confess where we've fallen short, to confess our sin, to show that we are broken and tired of pursuing the ideal in this world. So Father, we ask for this free gift of grace that you provide through the shed blood of Jesus. This man who lived a perfect life, who came to this earth as an innocent child, who died a death that we deserved, and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, demonstrating his power over life, death, and everything in between. Father, we confess our sins. We seek repentance before the God of the universe, before this holy mediator, Jesus. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Lead us to repentance and confession. And let us rejoice in the eternal unity we have with you, Jesus. Father, we are thankful for all that you do for us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.